I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. One of the things that happens in Russia, and it's a trend one has to watch out for everywhere, is that the more unequal the wealth is, the weirder the national discussion is going to become. And a fantasy like, there's no Ukraine, we should invade, is more likely to become policy. The historian Timothy Snyder has been sounding the alarm on Vladimir Putin for years. Long before last year's invasion of Ukraine, Snyder warned that Putin was spinning dangerous national myths that would lead to war. But warped Russian history wasn't the only set of ideas making Snyder nervous. In an essay for Foreign Affairs last September, Snyder argued that Americans were also telling themselves a dangerous story about democracy. That it progresses naturally, that its success is inevitable. But now, Snyder argues, the Ukrainians are showing the world just what it takes to give democracy a fighting chance. Tim, thanks for your fantastic essay in Foreign Affairs last year, Ukraine Holds the Future, and for doing this. Very glad to be with you. Very glad to talk. So a a year ago, as U.S. intelligence warnings of a Russian invasion were becoming more pointed and and urgent, the consensus among most Americans and other non-Ukrainian observers was that Ukraine stood little chance of resisting a full-scale Russian onslaught. There's a huge amount that has surprised most of us since then. You, of course, had much deeper knowledge of and experience of Ukraine than most of us. But I imagine you've been surprised as well by the course of the last year. What has surprised you about the, the course of the war and, and events around it? I guess I would start a slightly different place because the form the question takes is, let's all get to where we were in February of 2022. And I just wasn't where everybody else was in February of 2022, because for me, this story begins in 2014, when Russia invades Ukraine the first time. And I wrote an entire book, Road to Unfreedom, which was chiefly about how that Russian invasion was related to Russia's participation in American politics. And so In February 22, I wasn't really surprised, I think, in the profound way that maybe other people were surprised. I think the profundity of all of this is the entrance of Ukraine into people's consciousness. I think the way that people were profoundly surprised was honestly by the realization that Ukraine exists and is not just a kind of plaything between Europe and Russia or America and and, and Russia. So I, I don't mean to boast, but like that kind of surprise I didn't have. I, I did expect that Ukraine would resist. I had some idea of how they would resist because the legacy of 2014 of the Maidan is one of horizontal societal self-organization of civil society. And that is in fact, one of the main ways that Ukraine has resisted. Another part of this, another source of the surprise Going, going a little bit less deep, it's still pretty deep, are all the stereotypes that we had about Ukraine. Like it's like it's an oligarchy or it's corrupt or there are Russian speakers there or whatever. In all those propaganda tropes, as in every good propaganda trope, there is some element of truth. But we were kind of stuck in those propaganda tropes is, um, is a legacy of Russian propaganda, but also the, I think the way that most of us were educated about the history of, of, of Russia. So I don't mean to dodge your question. I just want to say that, like, in fact, I wasn't surprised they resisted. And within a few weeks, I was saying that they were going to win, which is where I still am. I want to I want to come back to some of the questions about what it what what victory looks like and how we get there. But let's start with with some of that history in your essay last year, as well in other other writings. You've explored Putin's weaponization of a kind of distorted historical narrative to explain and justify his war. I want to talk about what brought Russia and Putin to this point, but let's start with the kind of use of history. You call 
grotesque, but you know, to some extent, as you noted, all leaders and all nations engage in myth making and you know constructing narratives and forgetting crimes. That can be you know inspiriting and, and uniting in constructive ways, or it can be malign. What is different about Putin's use of history? Is it a difference of degree or kind? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question. You know, I'm going to dodge you using Hegel and say that at some point a difference in degree becomes a difference in kind. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, there's there's competitive myth making going on inside all political systems, including our own, very actively all the time. For me, as a historian, the live question is whether we also have history. That is, we also have people free to write history books and carry out historical research and to write explanations which are neither for nor against the official version, but and, and, and you know, not even necessarily making contact with it, but which train people in a certain kind of thinking, you know, the kind of thinking where you might be wrong about the past, you might be wrong about the present, maybe what the government is telling you isn't true. The presence of that is very important. And, uh, you know, so, so you know, to go off on a slight bit of a tangent, one of the reasons I worry about American democracy is not just the myth-making, but the, the weakening of the humanities and the weakening of history as the thing which gets over that myth-making. So in Russia, we see, as your question suggests, a kind of extreme case where changes in difference do be, changes in degree do become a change in kind, where specific things in Russia are now illegal to discuss. You can't discuss the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. You can't discuss the, the the Soviet alliance with with Nazi Germany in 1939. That is a that is illegal. And then there are other things like the like the Holodomor, the famine in Ukraine of 1933, where there's an official line, which everyone knows what the official what the official line is. And those are elements that lead you to where Putin got to by, I would say, 2012, where he is saying that Ukraine and Russia are deeply spiritually together, and that nothing that appears to be true in the real world can undermine that deep spiritual unification. And so here we have a myth, which I think is actually believed by a leader, and there's no one who can really resist that myth, right? And so that myth then takes on the form in 2021 of a big lie when when Putin writes the essay about how Ukraine and Russia were always together. And that big lie combined with the invasion of Ukraine, it creates a kind of umbrella for other smaller lies, other, other, other smaller forms of mendacity, like the Ukraine is run by Jews or it's run by Nazis or it's run by the European Union or whatever. Once you establish the big lie that Ukraine and Russia are together and you make that big lie unassailable, then other people's minds are triggered into finding the smaller rationalizations which can make you know this war somehow match that, that larger feature. So I think it's it's a really important question because once you get to a certain kind of myth making, that kind of myth making is going to tend to lead to violence because you need to make the world match up the myth, right? Putin can't say he's wrong, right? It's not the kind of thing where he can admit he's wrong. And then it also generates violence because it, it engages other people's minds to to come up with aggressive forms of grievance, which explain how this big lie, you know, must somehow be true. So in the example of this war. Ukraine is resisting, but you can't challenge the, the 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 fundamental lie. So you say, well, they're resisting because Poland, or they're resisting because NATO, or they're resisting because international Jewish conspiracy, or whatever or whatever it might be. And so the 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 big lie then engages people's people to action, and then their actions generate smaller things that prop up the big lie. So I, I appreciate the question because I think I think the the, the larger mendacity isn't just a kind of peccadillo of Putin's. It's it's a, it's actually driving the war. 
So the the historical narrative as Putin has deployed it in that essay and elsewhere is focused on Ukraine's supposed place in Russian history and I guess more recently on uh, Russia's mistreatment by the West, supposed mistreatment by the West and NATO expansion and all of that. But what's your sense of what got Putin here? I mean, why why did he launch the invasion and why now? I think part of it is is that he actually believes some version of this. And by the way, that that does distinguish him from someone like like Mr. Trump in American politics. I think there's absolutely zero chance that Trump believes he won the 2020 election. But I think there's a pretty good chance that Putin believes at some level there isn't really a Ukraine. As I have tracked Putin over the last two decades, what I have seen is a trend line in which somewhere around 2009, 2010, he starts to speak about Ukraine and indeed the world order in a different way, where he moves away from the the line he took at the beginning, which was something like, there is a world order and Russia has a place in the world order and I'm going to establish order in Russia, to something which is more like, what matters is not order, but civilization. And Russia is a special civilization. And because it's special, people should make exceptions for it. And the rules aren't really rules and they don't really apply to us. And in that shift, which one can see in his campaign to return to the presidency in 2012, it's already quite evident then, Ukraine has a special place because Ukraine is is, is an example of what's special about Russia. What's special about Russia is its, is its connection to Ukraine. And it's an example of where the rules are going to have to be broken because Ukraine's not really a state. It's really part of this deeper Russian civilization. So I think part of the answer is that Mr. Putin has changed and he's moved from somebody who was chiefly trying to work his way towards Russian power, you know, elbowing at the constraints of the international order to someone who's saying the international order doesn't really matter because Russia is special. And the argument for being special is the argument that goes back in his view a thousand years. Now, there are, of course, other things that are happening. I mean, I think there is a power calculation which says that if we don't act now, we'll have to act later and our chances are worse. And I think there's another power calculation, which is that Trump might have just given us Ukraine, but now that Biden's president, that's not going to happen. In some ways, it sounds like we have, and most people in the U.S. foreign policy world at least, have misunderstood both Ukraine and Russia. There was this tendency to kind of just group them in one kind of post-Soviet mess. What kind of accounts for the differences in those histories in the last, you know, 30 years since the end of the the fall of the Soviet Union? Why did, you know, Ukraine develop one way and Russia the other? And were there things that the U.S. could have done to to change that course in the Russian case? Yeah. So I, I appreciate that question because I think it's important when we start talking about history, actually to start from the last 30 years. The last 30 years have been of really, have been of great historical significance for both countries because there a moment begins in 1991 which is full which is open which is full of contingency and if you want to be optimistic promise and things might have gone in various ways for both countries i think it's uh it's important to note that beginning in 1991 ukraine and russia really did begin to follow quite different paths with with different attitudes towards the post-soviet past and importantly with different attitudes towards pluralism and democracy which isn't to say that the Ukrainian trajectory was perfect. By no means was it. But one thing which happens in Russia, which doesn't happen in Ukraine, is that all the oligarchs get disciplined. And the and so the, and the state itself becomes the main oligarch. 
with some sub-oligarchs, you know, servant oligarchs around it. But what Mr. Putin succeeds in doing eventually is taming the oligarchs and creating a kind of oligarchical state. In Ukraine, that taming never happens. You have at the beginning, you know, a kind of oligarchical pluralism where state institutions are kind of traded and handed off, but they're not completely devalued and elections are not fraudulent. And then you have, you have in the Ukrainian case, a couple of important turning points. One is 2004, 2005, when a sitting president does try to determine who his successor is going to be and fails. And that's very important. He fails as a result of popular resistance because at that point, Ukrainians do something which Russians never managed to do, which is to make an election count when the people in power didn't want it to count. So Putin um, succeeds where, you know, where Ukrainian pretenders to tyranny fail. He is anointed by Yeltsin. And after that, no elections really matter. And there's never a moment where Russian society actually is able to determine who its leader is in the 21st century. And then a second turning point, you know, which you know Russian liberals will also readily acknowledge, is the Maidan itself, 2014-2015, when Putin seeks to, in fact, successfully bullies the then Ukrainian president Yanukovych into not signing a treaty which would have brought Ukraine closer to the European Union. And then there's Ukrainian popular protest because you because Europe is popular and because there's a there's a prevailing consensus that Ukraine should join at some point the European Union. And then in the context of that protest, Russia chooses to invade Ukraine. And I think here we see another turning point which maybe gets missed. So on the Ukrainian side, Russia invades at the worst possible moment. There's, there's there's utter chaos, right? The Ukrainian armed forces are in no position to be to, to defend the country, and still Russia doesn't do very well. They do far less well than they thought they were going to do. And in addition to that, the Ukrainians, and this is the point we miss, they really resented losing Crimea. They really resented Russian foreign presence on their territory, right? Like so, like for a lot of Western observers, the fact that Russia got Crimea seemed to be in some way natural. But for Ukrainians, it was humiliating and something to be reversed at some point. And then with Russia, I think that, and this gets to the end of your question, I think the thing that we missed, and which I was trying to hammer on at the time in 2013, 2014, is that we weren't seeing the kinds of things we were talking about, that Russia was a technocracy and so on. And we weren't seeing the things that Russia was talking about, namely that Ukraine isn't a real state. Ukraine was a real state. What we were seeing was the emergence of a far-right capture of Russian political dialogue. We were seeing the emergence of you know, a proto-fascist way of seeing the world. And that was really overlooked at the time. And I think that that's why I wrote Road to Unfreedom, because there was a, there was a change in how Putin saw the world and the kinds of arguments that Putin was using to invade Ukraine, they weren't within the acceptable parameters that we wanted them to be in. Like there was a strange way in which we were kind of trying to force Russia into acceptable parameters. Like maybe it was really all about defending Russian speakers. I mean, that would, the invasion would still be illegal, but like that would be something that maybe we could understand. That was never what it was about. On the contrary, in 2014, the, the Russian speakers in Ukraine were free to say what they wanted to say whereas Russian speakers in Russia were not. And one of the reasons why Ukraine was a problem for Russia was precisely that. You had free exchange of views in Russian, right? So it was never Russia's going to invade to protect Russian speakers. And it was always Russia's going to invade to suppress Russian speakers because Russian speakers in Ukraine are a problem for Russia. 
So I think in 2014, we lacked some imagination about what Russia was up to. And we were, and then there's a, there's a techno part about this as well. In 2014, we were really much more vulnerable to cyber war through social media than we are now. And so if you look back at the discussion of 2014, it's really cluttered by the Russian tropes. Like it's cluttered by there's no Ukrainian state. It's all, it, it's all an oligarchy. They're all Nazis. They're all Jews. It, they're all gays. Our discussion is really cluttered by that. And that, that prevented us from seeing what was actually happening. You know, and then in our own minds afterwards, there's a kind of shame about that. Like we really got that completely wrong. But, but there are a few people who, who go up and say, oh, we got that completely wrong. Let's reanalyze Ukraine and Russia. And so those are, that's one of the things I think which set us up for, 2000, for 2022. Were there policy moves or steps that you were recommending the United States and its allies take in the kind of post you know, 2013, 2014, and subsequently that you think could have averted 2022? Or is it a matter of just kind of better preparing for, for the inevitable? That's a great question. I mean, I was in a public discussion with, with Peter Pomerantsev a few months ago in which he made what I think is the fundamental point that 2014 was not treated with the seriousness that it should have been treated. And that if we had treated 2014 the way that we treated 2022, there never would have been a 2022, right? So we, for some of the reasons that I just gave, we didn't actually treat 2014 as a fundamental violation of the basic principles of the United Nations Charter. We didn't treat it as a war of aggression. You know, we were caught up in the notion of, oh, look, the little green men, and oh, maybe it's Russia's, maybe Russia has support among Russian speakers. All those things are really kind of irrelevant. One country invaded another country. That's what happens. One country invaded another country. And we didn't react. There was a kind of decadence in our reaction where we were sort of waiting for it to speak to us. And that may be, that may be a kind of a cruel way to put it. But, you know, it, it, it took MH17 for the Europeans really to take it seriously. Like the, when, when the Russians shut down MH17, you know, that brought sanctions. Like that, that somehow made the war real. It's as though like we were kind of, I mean, this is kind of a problem with 21st century, you know, decadence in general. We were waiting for it to speak to us. And the Russians were very good at making sure it didn't speak to us. Even if we didn't buy that the Ukrainians were run by, you know, the gay or the Jewish or the Nazi conspiracy, we still like that propaganda threw up enough misapprehension and concern that we couldn't quite, you know, see the thing for what it was. So, you know, if we if we state it just in a very bald way, we didn't react well enough to one country invading another country in 2014. We should have been arming, you know, we should have been arming Ukraine then. And we should have been using some of the some of the language that we're using now back then. Because of course 2022 is worse, but going back to degree and kind, it's worse in degree. But all the things that we see you know, now that we've come, become alert to now, it's partly that the war is worse, but it's also partly that now we're taking Ukraine seriously. An awful lot of bad things happened on the territories that Ukraine, that Russia has, has claimed to have annexed from Ukraine or controls. Torture, you know, concentration camps, deportation of people to Russia. A lot of very bad things happened on a smaller scale. And it became a kind of second tier issue in US foreign policy and geopolitics at that point. It was you know, always there, but I think not something that was taken seriously by by most policymakers. My, I mean, my broad critique of the Obama administration would be that if you're going to go to China first, you have to you have to go to China with the Europeans. I mean, I, that was my problem with the pivot from the beginning. And you know, once you kind of treat Europe as secondary or as something which will take care of itself, you're setting. I mean, not that it's Obama's fault, obviously, but you're setting yourself up for something like this. And then when when Russia does invade Ukraine in 2014. 
much of the response in the Obama administration was kind of technocratic. Like Russia isn't really a threat to world order because look, its GDP isn't that big, which kind of misses the point. You know, you can cause an awful lot of mischief with new techniques, even if your GDP is not very big. And Russia kept causing mischief. You know, and I would argue that that our misreading or the Obama administration's misreading of 2014 also invites 2016. Because if you don't take seriously what Russia was able to do with social media in 2014, among other things to us, then you're probably not going to be too frightened of it in 2016 during the election, which they weren't. You know, they were looking for things, I mean, to their credit, they were looking for all kinds of things like direct, like direct manipulation of electoral results. And this again was something I was writing about at the time. Nobody really had their eye on social media and like that way of shaping the American conversation. So the Russians succeeded in shaping the American conversation about Ukraine in 2014, which we didn't quite note as a danger. And then that set us up for some worse things to come. But yeah, my main criticisms would be like you could going to China first without Europe, I think didn't make sense. And the idea that Europe was just going to kind of hum along because the economics were good and that Russia would stay in its place because its economy was small. I think that that was that was a misanalysis. The ideas that Ru- that Russian leadership had about its its neighbors were important. And I mean, one of the problems with the economic analysis, like the idea that, you know, that capitalism brings democracy is that it doesn't account for massive inequality. If you have massive inequality as you do in Russia, then the people who control the wealth are going to end up telling the story. And so you're not going to you're not going to end up having the kind of situation you want where rising prosperity and a middle class and so on provides a check on government and intends to force people into a reasonable conversation. If you have a big economy where you know most of the wealth is controlled by a few people, which is Russia and unfortunately increasingly also the U.S., if you have an economy like that, then economics isn't going to lead the way you want it to lead. It's it's going to lead to old guys having fantasies, which they then try to implement in the world. You know so. This goes back to your earlier question. One of the things that happens in Russia, and it's a trend one has to watch out for everywhere, is that the more unequal the wealth is, the weirder the national discussion is going to become. And a fantasy like there's no Ukraine we should invade is more likely to become policy. We'll be back after a short break. The Foreign Affairs Interview is brought to you by Foreign Affairs Magazine. The magazine provides thoughtful takes on global events straight from the world's leading experts. You can get unlimited access, including daily articles online, six issues a year, and a century of archives for only $39.95. Subscribe today at foreignaffairs.com slash subscribe. I want to turn to the the war itself and where things go from here, but still lingering on the history for one, one more second. How did the Trump years play into this? I mean, that was the moment when most... Americans, I think, probably paid attention to Ukraine more than they ever have before in the impeachment context. How did that shape these dynamics and Putin's decision making? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to pretend that I can I can answer that at the specificity at which you ask it. Beyond very broad strokes, we don't know how Putin analyze, analyzes American politics. But the, the a striking thing for me would be Zelensky's position, where in the Trump administration, you know, Ukraine is just an instrument to try to set up an American election to go the way the sitting president wants it to go. And that is kind of, that's one more, as it were, colonial interpretation of Ukraine in a country where colonial interpretations have been the norm for a very long time. Putin's notion that Ukraine doesn't exist and therefore we should take it over, that, that, that it's, it's different from the previous imperial versions because it's postmodern. It, ha- it takes on various different forms all the time. It's very fluid. 
But the notion that Ukraine is just an object is a notion which Stalin had. It's a notion that Hitler had in the First World War. The Germans and the Austrians wanted to treat it as a breadbasket. Like that notion that it's a kind of object for someone else to take has a long history. And we contributed to that, you know, or our, 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 our politics contributed to that in treating Ukraine just as an object inside an American political strike, American political contest. And you can see Zelensky struggling with the situation because I mean, Zelensky is all about subjectivity, like becoming a subject, like acting in the world. Like that's his, that's his gift, changing the world. And his country and he personally are being pushed into yet another situation where they're just an object. And they're not going to get anything out of it. So, I mean, the Trump administration does two things. It tries to turn Ukraine into a bauble yet again, which the Ukrainians, I think, pretty dexterously resisted and, and, and dodged. But also Trump repeats Putin's talking points over and over again for four years. And Trump changed fundamentally the Republican electorate's view of Russia. If you look at the polls, you know, before the Trump phenomenon, you're not going to find I forget the numbers, but you're not, it's, it's well below 50%. But once Trump starts talking about how Putin is great and Russia is great, those numbers change. And suddenly Republicans are starting to think of Russia as an acceptable place. And they're thinking of Russia as an acceptable place in pretty critical years, right? 2017 to 2021, years in which you know, oligarchy is consolidating, far-right rhetoric is becoming more important. And at the end of it, Russia is preparing to invade another country. And during that time, we have a kind of you know American cheerleader of Russia and Putin in power the entire time. I, I, I won't want to try to say how that fits into his analysis, but I mean, my own, my own sense is that Putin would probably think that American public opinion had been prepared as well as it could be by Trump. And I think they also had a read on January 6th, which was that January 6th showed the dysfunctionality of the American system. And so a push that followed hard on the heels of January 6th would be unlikely to be met with anything like consistent resistance. That's how they thought that was a miscalculation, but I, I think a pretty reasonable one, honestly. So the debate among U.S. policymakers and observers more broadly now is about you know what what is possible, what what Ukrainian victory is possible, and what it looks like. But it's worth going back to your original point before we get to that question. This idea that people really had a you know warped understanding of Zelensky and of Ukrainians and their capacity for resistance. What were the arguments you were having a year ago and in the the, the run up to the war? where you were kind of pointing out to, to others what they were missing about misunderstanding about the Ukrainians. So let me just take that as an opportunity to say a word about Ukrainian history. I was, I, I, I hesitated to respond about Ukrainian history before because I, I don't like the setup where Russia has a myth and now let's respond to Russia's myth with Ukrainian history because that ends up making Ukrainian history look like a counter myth. You know, it, and then in that weird way, it reinforces the kind of, you know, the position that Russia's real and Ukraine is not real, which is what this is in a way all about. So one thing I think people didn't really get was that there is a deep history in which Ukraine is quite different than Russia. And that deep history is part of the awareness of an awful lot of Ukrainians. The idea of a Ukrainian nation is much older than the idea of, a Ukraine, of an American nation, for example. And you, 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 lands of Ukraine were in contact with major European trends like the Renaissance and the Reformation in ways that, that Moscow was not. And Ukraine has particular traditions, such as the Cossacks, you know, involving collective decision making and 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 resistance. It also has that long experience with Poland and Lithuania and and the form of government that is a republic, a very flawed republic it was, but it was nevertheless a republic. All of that is essentially alien to to Moscow. And then in the last thirty years, the chief things that one would notice, or, or what we talked about at length earlier, that Ukraine is not a perfect democracy by any means, but 
Ukrainians have the idea that they get to choose their own rulers. And against people, domestic and foreign, who have a different idea, Ukrainians have consistently resisted, right? So in that sense, the idea that it's not even about Russia and Ukraine, the idea that Putin gets to pick who the Ukrainian leader is, I mean, Zelensky becomes much more popular because he is, he is their leader at this, at this particular time. Now, you know, the things that I was saying in early, the main thing I was saying is what we're about to talk about, which is that we have to think about Ukrainian victory. That's been what I've been trying to get people to think about since March. And the reason why is that, you know, like everybody else or most other people, I want the war to end. And that's the only way that it can end. And the other reason why is that I think in a, in a funny way, America doesn't really believe in winning wars anymore because we've lost so many. And we don't talk about how we lose them. We don't use that word lose very often, but we've lost a whole series of wars, you know, and we've lost them with the same weapons we're giving the Ukrainians. In fact, with better weapons than we're giving the Ukrainians. And so I think there's an odd way that by the time you get to the Biden administration, the notion that a war is to be won is, is, is tricky, right? Like it's like the whole notion of winning in some way has been captured by Trump, but also like in the, in the back of people's minds, how can they win? Like we, you know, we didn't win in Afghanistan and we didn't win in Iraq and we didn't win in Vietnam. How can, how can they win? Right. How can that, how's that even thinkable? And it is thinkable because they have all kinds of advantages that, that we didn't have. They're defending their own country. They've got competent leadership. They have a functioning state. They have a very, they have a very functional civil society. They have all kinds of advantages. It's a very, it's a very different situation defending your own country with a functional state than it is going abroad and losing a war. And of course, this was right on the heels of Afghanistan. Right in Afghanistan. So everybody was thinking, oh, we can't have another Afghanistan. And it's like that meant that people were hesitant to commit to Ukraine because they didn't want another situation where all of our weaponry was going to be rusting on a hill somewhere until the enemy found it. Right. You know, that was kind of a contingent thing, which was unfortunate. But the deeper problem was if you want to imagine the war ending, you've got to imagine it when ending with somebody winning. And and then so then the next the next way you think is what can you do to make sure that it's the Ukrainians and not the Russians who win because somebody's going to win at the end of the day. Looking way back, I mean, some of the things I was saying in March and April were things that people who are smarter or more you know better at this than I am, like Laurie Friedman, Phillips O'Brien, Ben Hodges, Mark Hartley, like those those people were way early in saying the Ukrainians can win this war militarily, and and we were kind of a lot of us were kind of locked into the narrative that deep down Russia must have some strength that we don't know about. But the people who were actually military historians with, or, or, or some of these guys are you know, strategists, retired officers, who had no knowledge of Russia and Ukraine and whose minds were not captured by whatever stereotypes arose from thinking you know something about Russia and Ukraine. Interestingly, they were the ones who were saying, if you just look at the battlefield, it looks like Ukraine can win. So I was trying to do, I was trying to say like Ukraine has to win if we want peace. But also let's, let's, I mean, this is kind of ironic because I work on the region, but like, let's abstract away from all the things you think and let's look at the actual battlefield and recognize the battlefield has a logic of its own and try to work on that. So, I mean, the rejoinder from skeptics is that, yes, we all want Ukraine to win, but there's no plausible theory of victory here. There's no way that you can imagine the Ukrainians, you know, expelling the Russians from Crimea and really kind of doing much better than they've done so far. What is your response to to that skepticism, and, and and what is your kind of vision for how what Ukrainian victory looks like, and what's the theory of victory here? Yeah, yeah, no, great, great question. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna start by saying that at every step, the Ukrainians have performed better than people expected, and we keep setting ourselves up for that. Like each time the Ukrainians do something remarkable, we say, "Goodness gracious, that was remarkable." 
And then two weeks later, the New York Times is using the word stalemate again. And I just wish I had like a dime for every time the New York Times used the word stalemate, which by the way is a totally inappropriate metaphor because a stalemate is a situation in which, from which there is no exit and no one's going to win. And that's just not where we are. And it's, it's so cheap and it's so, it's so wrong. And it's also, I think, profoundly disrespectful of, of all the people on the battlefield. Over and over again, the Ukrainians have exceeded our expectations. And I think that should be telling us something about what's possible. You know, it tells us that things are possible in this war that we don't think are possible. And we should start from there as a methodological point. The second thing I want I would want to point out is that wars generally don't end the way anyone thinks they're going to end. And so having the correct notion of how it's going to end is not actually a precondition for it to end. So there really shouldn't be a parlor game where like those of us who think we know something about this say like, well, it can't go like this and it can't go like this. Therefore, it you know, must go on forever or therefore the Russians have to win. It's not going to go on forever and somebody's going to win. And I think it's less likely that it's going to be going to be the Russians. But my, my point here is that we, because you can't see how it's going to end doesn't mean that it's not going to end. So if you look, you know, if you, if you look at the history of American war fighting, there aren't very many cases where it ends the way we think it's going to end, including in our victories. Like it's, it, it, if you, if you take any war and you go six months b- before it ends, you're not going to find a bunch of elites with a correct, you know, what you're calling theory of victory. That's just not how war is. It's really unpredictable, which leads me to the third point, which is the, the thing which the, the, the ground thing, the basic thing, which is predictable is, is what Clausewitz said, you know, that fundamentally war is about politics. So this war ends when the politics in the Kremlin or in, in Kiev, that's possible too, but I think it's much less likely. The war ends not because of some objective thing or some, some category that we impose from the outside. It ends when the political pressure is too great. And so just what that means for Putin, that's like a level of specificity that I think we won't be able to get into, but it will end the way other wars end when the political pressure is too great on one side. And so that's what you aim for. I mean, the Ukrainians should be winning back territory because it's their territory. They should win back territory because there are atrocities committed on the territories that Russia controls every day, but they should also win back territory because that's the way that you exert pressure on Russia. And then at some point, it's up to the Russians to decide, you know, how they're going to lose. Like us, they're not going to say that they lost, right? But like what story they tell themselves and us, like that's that's up to them. We don't have to plot this out for them, you know? Like there, there are moments where we like kind of take more responsibility than we really need to. We don't have to, to write for Putin the story about how he loses in Ukraine. We just have to make sure that he loses in Ukraine. How do you think about Crimea in this context? And I, I'm wary of setting this up in a way that falls into the same kind of myth, counter myth trap that you uh, highlighted earlier. But, you know, people often treat Crimea as a separate case. Why is that wrong, right? What's the right way to think about Crimea and and Ukraine's prospects there? There isn't really the kind of historical difference about Crimea that people tend to think there is. I mean, all, all, all nations are new, including the Russian one. The recorded history of Crimea is largely about the 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 Tatar Hanate, which lasted for for four centuries. You know, by the time Russian power got there, you know, basically the entire population was 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 what we would now call Crimean Crimean Tatar, and the integration of Crimea into the Russian Empire, which was done with the help of the Ukrainian with the, with the help of Ukrainian soldiers, by the way, like that takes place at the, around the same time that Ukrainian institutions and Polish institutions are being crushed by the Russian Empire. So, you know, it's all it's all relatively new. That Crimea is part of Ukraine. It doesn't happen for the reasons people think it happens. It happens because the Soviet Union ethnically cleanses Crimean Tatars in 1944, as a result of which the special status that Crimea had in the Soviet Union as an autonomous region no longer had any coherence. And of course, they couldn't say why, because they'd ethnically cleansed all the Crimean Tatars, but they had. 
And so then there, that led to a discussion about what to do with Crimea. And the answer ended up being attach it to Ukraine. And the, the reason for that was that it's easier to do electricity and water supplies because Crimea is an island compared to vis-a-vis Russia, but it's a peninsula for Ukraine. But then on that was the practical reasoning. But on top of that, Khrushchev gave this argument that, you know, that this is a gift from Russia to Ukraine to celebrate how Russia and Ukraine are always together. And at that, precisely that time in Russian official, and this is the Soviet Union, sorry, in Soviet official historiography, there rises the myth that Ukraine or the narrative, Ukraine and Russia were in, were in fact separate, but Ukraine made a choice back in 1654 to always be with Russia. And that story is then kind of the dominant myth that everyone struggles with today. So I, you know, the, the history of the history of Ukraine is a history of assemblage of different territories, which is true for, for any territorial entity. That Crimea is Ukrainian is fundamentally a, a result of international law. You know, like we we wouldn't really want China invading Hawaii on the logic that like there are a lot of Hawaiian, you know, like like even if you could make the argument that Hawaii is that its history is not the same as the rest of American history, which you certainly could, it wouldn't make it okay for China to invade Hawaii. So like I'm happy to talk about the history, but like in some sense it's all kind of beside the point. I mean what because you can you can always gin up some historical argument for why you're going to invade another country. I mean, as for Ukraine winning it back, I mean, my view is that the 1991 borders are the legal borders. And that's that's what the UN Charter says. And Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, just as much as they invaded in 2022. I think Putin, ironically, has thrown open this question in a way that it wasn't open before, because the February 2022 borders are going to be, they're going to be crossed, right? And some, sometimes they've, they already have been crossed, they're going to be crossed. And so Putin has opened up this question, I think, on, on himself, right? But I guess, you know, the, the, uh, we should stay with the logic of what's possible on the battlefield. We should listen to what the Ukrainians themselves say, you know, and we should stress the entire time that they're, they're, the only legal borders are the ones that were recognized by by treaty and and so on. That's, that's my view on it. Before we close, I, I want to turn to the implications of this, the messages this should send in the context of concern over democracy globally and in the United States. I mean, you wrote very powerfully about this in, in the last several years in your foreign affairs essay, you write eloquently about the stakes of Ukraine for for democracy more generally. And, and you say in that piece, that those of us who took democracy for granted were sleepwalking toward tyranny. The Ukrainian resistance is the wake-up call. So if if we heed that wake-up call, if we if we learn the right lessons for from from Ukraine, what would that what would that mean doing in the U.S. and, and more generally? Yeah, thank you, thank you for that question. The, one of the problems going all the way back to the beginning of the conversation and one of its themes, one of the problems with these historical myths is that they remove all human agency. So Putin's claim that Ukraine and Russia are together forever because of a baptism in the year 988 removes all human agency between 988 and the present, right? Things are just locked into place. There's some larger force, says Putin, you know, he claims it's God, but there's some larger force, which which means that all human choices don't matter. Now that might seem a kind of strange argument and very far away and alien, but I'm afraid it's kind of, it's, it's kindred to the argument that democracy is brought about by larger forces. That after the revolution of 1989, there were no alternatives. People just had to become democratic because they wouldn't be able to think of anything else to do. Or the notion that capitalism is going to bring democracy. Capitalism is itself automatic and it's going to automatically bring democracy because of something about the way that capitalism works. And that, you know, those kinds of ideas did lull us to sleep after 1989. 
democracy is possible, but it's hard and it's by no means automatic. And when you, you know, when you say that it's the larger forces that are going to bring it about, you're working, what you're actually doing is working actively against democracy because democracy depends upon believing that you're choice matters, your actions matter, your unpredictable, you know, your unpredictable way through the world matters, that people can come out of nowhere and be elected president, you know, that people can come out of nowhere and make a difference, that your views might change, you know, all, all those things, all of that we, we've quelched for the last 30 years, basically. And so the way I've been arguing it so far, you know, in, in my previous work was to say, look at Russia, like Russia shows a way that the United States could go. If you, if you keep talking about the larger forces, if you keep allowing wealth to coalesce in fewer and fewer hands, this is one way things can go. And now, as your question you know, kindly suggests, you can look at Ukraine, you can say, you can take a positive example, not just a negative example, and say, look, you know, their institutions aren't perfect any more than ours are. They are certainly subject to larger forces like we are, more so. But what they're reminding us is that the larger forces don't always work for you. You know, the larger forces might be working against you. They probably are, in fact. And so you have to then think about what those larger forces are. Like, so an example of a kind of impersonal one is wealth inequality. Yeah, if you want democracy, you've got to work against wealth inequality. You can't say capitalism is just going to deliver the goods because it isn't. You have to think about what kind of capitalism you're going to have. But then, you know, the more the more poignant, palpable example is is the invasion of Ukraine, where not just Zelensky have to decide if, if it's just about the larger forces, then I should run like hell. And you know, and that's why that is why we told him to run like hell. And I and we shouldn't pretend pretend later that we you know that we said anything else. That's why we thought he would run like hell. The reason why he didn't run is that he, he knew that you can only make the larger forces change by standing up to them and renaming them and creating your own larger forces. And so the fundamental lesson here is that democracy is is involves it's an ethical commitment. Right, it's, it's it's not something which exists out there in the world. You shouldn't begin sentences with the word democracy because democracy doesn't do this or it doesn't do that. Right, people make democracy by wanting it, by caring about it, by understanding how the larger forces work against it, and by confronting those larger forces. Right, so so Zelensky and Ukrainians in general give an example of that. The larger forces are clearly against them, but they're winning anyway. But they couldn't be winning. Without that commitment, you know, without that, without without this overtly and what might seem to a lot of people naive ethical commitment to saying like, actually, a Ukraine with a Ukraine the way it is is just better than Ukraine run by Russians, and actually our own democratic institutions, imperfectly might be, are just better, you know, better enough to be worth dying for, better than the things that might come in place. And we're not, you know, most of us aren't faced with decisions like that, but that decision leads us in the right direction. You know, if, if you want to have a democracy, you have to say that it's better. You have to believe that it's better. And you can't, you can't, you can't decide that other people or other larger forces are going to bring it to you because the moment you've made that decision, what you're talking about is no longer democracy. It's ruled by larger forces. That is a great note to end on, Tim. Thanks for the wonderful essay and for joining us today. So glad I could do it, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming-Dresser, and Molly McEnany. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, Gabrielle Sierra, and Marcus Zacharia. 
Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in.